Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We're in a series called One, where we are using Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 7, to guide us through a better understanding of biblical unity in the body of Christ. We hope these messages help you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) What a special moment it is for me to be standing up here before you today um, as I seek to explain the scriptures and hopefully challenge and encourage you to live out the fullness of God's calling on your life. It has been my joy and privilege to serve here, as Phil said, for the last several years as the children's ministry director, uh, to get the joy of partnering with parents and loving on kids. And a lot of you know my wife, uh, my better half, Summer. Yep, that's her right there. She deserves a shout out for sure. She puts up with me, so bless her for that. But no, the, the joke I wanted to bring you in, the joke around the house right now is that Summer could potentially be a pastor's wife. Now, if you know her, you know why that's funny. And if you don't know why that's funny, go ask her afterwards and she'll tell you why that's funny. So I am so excited to be here and I believe the Lord has given me a word for today to share with you. And more than that, he's raised me up for this season of ministry, and I'm so glad for that. So in children's ministry, we're all about games. Who likes games in here by the raise of hands? Yep, you, you got to like a game, okay? So I thought we'd start out with one today. I'm going to put a couple faces on the screen. And raise your hand if you know who these strapping young lads are. Okay, thank you, Pastor Phil. appreciate that. So if you, if you haven't brushed up on your church history recently... This is George Whitfield and John Wesley, key players in the revival of the evangelical church in England in the 1700s. Both men were extremely opinionated and passionate about theology, and unfortunately, they disagreed about everything, and most often intense. I mean, it it was a little reminiscent of this 2020 election season, to be honest. Um, There was mudslinging, there were statements about the other's ignorance and disillusionment, The heart of these men's tension derived from their disagreement about the doctrine of predestination. Whitfield believed ardently that uh, he was a Calvinist and he believed that God predestined people to receive eternal life. Whereas Wesley emphasized free will in his preaching. In a heated episode between the two, Wesley was noted to say, he told me that he and I preached two different gospels and therefore he would not only join with me, or give me the right hand of fellowship, but he was resolved publicly to preach against me and my brother Charles wheresoever he preached at all. That's awkward, okay? That's intense. And I thought Baptists and Pentecostals were at each other's throats. I mean, they put them to shame. On top of their sharp disagreements about theology, they also differed in all of their methods. Whitfield was known to have serious disdain for Wesley's church leadership, In Wesley's churches, people fell out, they were healed, Um, they basically shook under conviction. This really aggravated Whitfield. So the legacy of these two men carried on throughout their whole lives, and if anyone looked in, you would say that these men disagree and are disunified in about everything there could be. When Wesley was close to dying, one of Whitfield's followers, obviously still bitter, came up to him and said, we won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? To which Whitfield replied, yes, you're right. We won't see him in heaven. 
He will be so close to the throne of God and we will be so far away, we won't be able to see him. You see, there was a deeper unity in these two men than, than met the eye. There was an understanding of the reality that what united these men, these brothers in Christ, was far greater than what divided them. They understood what was essential and where liberties could be extended in their passions and their convictions. And I believe the same is true of each one of us in the body of Christ. So we just began last week this new series, One, A Biblical Perspective on Unity. And I wanted to review the great definition that we have for this. Biblical unity is a supernatural act of the Father, grounded in the work of Jesus on the cross, by which the Holy Spirit works to make all believers one. So when Phil began last week, he talked about our common calling that we have. He said that we have a common condition of sinful ruin apart from the work of Christ. But he also told us about the spiritual wealth that we have as believers in Jesus, the common salvation and the riches of God's grace, which he's lavished on us. So today we want to take a next step and we want to talk about the worthy walk. What do we do next? What comes of these spiritual riches So if you would grab your Bibles, grab your devices, we're going to land in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, but I want us to see the bigger picture, the overarching theme of the book of Ephesians that will help us understand chapter 4 better. And let me take this moment to encourage you as good Bible students, as, as those who want to learn and grow, I encourage you to read the whole book of Ephesians this week. It won't kill you, I promise. It's, it's not that, it's, it's six chapters, you can do it. Because, and I say that because we often, we, we make mistakes as modern readers and modern interpreters. We, we pick and choose our favorite verses out of the Bible, but we don't understand the overarching purpose of the books. And Ephesians is a letter. So would you receive a letter in the mail and pick and choose a sentence out of the middle, a sentence out of the end? No, you would read the whole book. So I encourage you this week, make that your challenge to read the book of Ephesians. And I know the whole book will come alive to you. So as we work towards our key passage this morning, I want you to see the theme of unity building. So let's start where Paul starts in chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we see here that the grand design of salvation is the work of unifying God and man. As God restores sinners and invites them into his family as adopted sons and daughters, he unites heaven and earth together. This will only finally and fully be accomplished when he comes back, but it's in process right now. This this theme continues in chapter 2. Flip forward to chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So do you hear that unity building, that theme, that theology of unity? Jesus Christ, who himself is our peace, bought by his sacrifice on the cross, one new creation, one body, a people who are near to him and have constant access to him by the Holy Spirit. Let's continue on this journey. Chapter three, verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So if you're a student of the Apostle Paul, if you've read a lot of his writings, you know he talks about mystery a lot. What is this mystery that you talk about, Paul? It's the amazing, earth-shattering reality that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the lover and keeper of Israel, also loves the whole world. He saves and delivers anyone who calls on his name, Jew or Gentile. Why? Because the grand design of salvation is the unifying of God and man. That is the great desire of his heart. So that brings us up to speed. That brings us to our landing zone here in Ephesians 4. So now that we've seen the rich doctrine that Paul has given us for the first few chapters, now we're going to dive into our duty as believers. Or in other words, we're going to move from our position in Christ to the practices that should define the life of every believer and should unify us together. So read along with me our main passage for today, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are so grateful to be in your house today. And Father, I pray what is said in Scripture that today, if we hear your voice, let us not harden our hearts. Father, let us have soft hearts to receive the truth implanted, which is able to save our souls. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So now that we have seen the overwhelming spiritual wealth that we have in Christ, through our salvation, through the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives, what do we do with that? Where do we go from there? We walk worthy. I love this word worthy. Who, who out there is a math person? You love mathematics. Anyone? Okay, not I says the fly. I love you guys for that. I do not do that. But this word, it's a mathematics word. It, it's where we get the idea of an axiom or an axiomatic statement. That it's self-evident. It's obvious. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that your life should match. It should make sense with who you really are in Christ. Your conduct should be consistent with a redeemed, adopted, and eternally valued son or daughter of God. So what, what does this worthy walk look like? That's what we want to talk about today. As Phil mentioned last week, these qualities in verses 2 and 3 are not prescriptive there. Oh, let's try it again. They're not prescriptive there. Good. I'm very interactive in kids' ministry, so you got to stay on your toes. Okay? In other words, Paul is not saying do this, be this. He is saying, 
Here's what you already are in Christ. Make sure that your conduct matches it. Church, there's great freedom in this. God doesn't require us to do anything that he hasn't already empowered us to do. I'm going to read that one more time. Let that sink in. God doesn't require us to do anything that he hasn't already empowered us to do. He's not saying as he did to Old Testament saints, if you obey me, then I will bless you. No, he's saying to us, I've already blessed you. Now in response to my love and grace, obey me. Now devotion can drive our duty. I have to be honest, as I was working through this text this week, it moved my own heart and it's challenging. So buckle up and get ready Because I believe that if we're honest with ourselves, this will be a challenging time, but it will be healing in the best way. So I want us to look at the worthy walk. I believe a worthy walk, there's some specific qualities that I want us to take a deeper look at. We're going to look at three. First, a worthy walk involves knowing your true self. Secondly, a worthy walk involves showing grace to others. And thirdly, a worthy walk involves pursuing peace in the church. So let's start where Paul starts, knowing your true self. A worthy walk involves knowing your true self. Paul writes, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. So Paul is essentially saying here that the worthy walk doesn't begin on the outside. It begins on the inside. It begins with the part of you that others don't see. It involves a true, unmasked look at yourself. A look that leads to an accurate understanding of who you are and who you are in relation to a perfect God. Amazingly, the word that Paul uses for humility here, it wasn't even in circulation at the time when this was written. In fact, the sophisticated, elite Greek world of the time would have considered the use of this word evil or unworthy. Some researchers even believe that Paul himself coined this word. And only Christians would be found using it. Humility is a deep sense of one's own littleness before God. An emptying of self, a refusal to treasure feelings of self-importance or to put yourself above others in thought or in action. You see, the humility that Paul talks about here is not born out of some type of resistant submission, but it is born out of someone who has been gracefully broken by God. The humility, this type of humility lives in a man or woman who despises their own sinfulness and knows that they have nothing to offer except their own spiritual bankruptcy. The humble man or woman claims no privileges, demands no rights, only receives what God gives with open hands. So, pride wrecks the worthy walk. Pride wrecks the worthy walk. An inflated ego, an arrogant heart, is not only destructive, but we find in other parts of the scripture that it is hated by God. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 16. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. So we see that humility is essential for the worthy walk. 
And let's be honest, who here is humble? Isn't it that elusive quality that if we say we're humble, we've lost it? It's so difficult. And yet we're not left without an example, are we? Who has emptied themselves and refused to treasure feelings of self-importance? Who has claimed no privileges and demanded no rights? Who has put others above himself? Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." We see several things here that are so important with the humility of Jesus. We see first that the creator became a creature. We see the master became a man. We see the sovereign became submissive. We see the owner became obedient. And we see the savior carried a cross. So church, brother or sister, what are you claiming? What are you demanding We ought to bow down before these realities that the God of the universe, the owner of all things, gave everything up for us. We have nothing to demand. We only have open hands before him. So a worthy walk involves a real knowledge, a true knowledge of ourselves. But secondly, we see that a worthy walk involves showing grace to others. Paul continues Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So once we've started with humility and understanding of our littleness before God, it gives us clear eyes to see others. We do not walk around touting our accomplishments and parading our righteousness because we understand That God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And guess what? Humility makes us gentle. You show me a humble person, and I'll show you a gentle person. These two are inseparable. But let's be honest. When we hear the word gentle, what do we think about? Well, we usually think of some mild weak, milk toast kind of person. In fact, I wanted to see what the world has to say about gentleness, so I looked up Webster, great Webster, you know, he knows all things, and I found here in the dictionary, gentleness is deficient in spirit, in courage, or not violent or strong. Now, I can get down with the not violent part, I don't need to be violent, but excuse me, deficient in spirit or courage? Don't sign me up for that. That does not sound like where we need to be, but yet this is what Webster says about this word gentle. So what is the Lord asking of us? Is the Lord asking for us to be a doormat for people to walk over? No. No, this is not the meaning of biblical gentleness. For the believer, gentleness means self-mastery. A person who has his or her every instinct and every passion under perfect control. 
The word was used to describe wild stallions who had been tamed. Biblical gentleness is great strength under control. I love how Jerry Bridges says it. Both gentleness and meekness are born of power, not weakness. There is a pseudo-gentleness that is effeminate, and there is a pseudo-meekness that is cowardly. But a Christian is to be gentle and meek because those are God-like virtues. We should never be afraid, therefore, that the gentleness of the Spirit means weakness of character. It takes strength, God's strength, to be truly gentle. So as I look at the landscape of our culture today, I, I notice a generational divide. I see that there's not a unified understanding of what it means to be gentle. And I especially want the men and the young men in the audience to hear what I'm saying here. I'm a millennial. I'm from that generation where uh, participation trophies were given. And with, I grew up with the understanding that if I put my mind to it, I could accomplish anything. My generation, and I would dare say my parents, struggles with a rigid sense of self-reliance and reckless confidence. Knowing our true selves and showing grace to others is usually the last thing on our minds. And as men, we have been taught that to be a real man is to be harsh, domineering, unfeeling, and callous. Our anthem has been, we are strong. And church, we've missed it. So, if you're a 20-something like me, or parent, grandparent, have our errors in our generations been righted by this one, by Gen Z? Have we now attained to this picture of biblical gentleness, godly strength under perfect control? I really believe as I look out that we've swung all the way to the other side of the pendulum. We see in this current generation of college students, high school students, and middle schoolers the highest rate of mental illness, mental illness and the pervasive gospel of social justice that colors everything in their world. Gen Zers are growing up to learn that we are fixed in a system of oppression. This has caused incredible pessimism and a sense of brokenness in the hearts of our youngest generation. To this generation, any display of strength, any display of strength is approached with skepticism. And any claim of authority is rejected. In this generation, gentleness has lost its backbone. So church, to walk in gentleness is not some kind of docile, mild-mannered approach to life. But instead, it is rigorous self-discipline in regards to our relationships with others. And we get an incredible picture of this when we look at the Lord Jesus Look what he said about himself in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And yet, let me ask you, what is the image that pops into your mind when you think about Jesus? Maybe from a child. It may be something like this one. This sweet, fair-skinned, blue-eyed man that just petted lambs and took children into his arms all day. I was talking to Phil this week, and he said, this is the copper-toned Jesus. And I thought, that's exactly right. <laughs> we love the copper-toned Jesus. 
And yet, do we forget the fact that he absolutely destroyed the temple grounds and upturned tables of corrupt religious leaders? Do we forget that he railed against hypocritical know-it-alls and called them vipers? Do we forget that he looked his top dog, Peter, right in the eye and called him Satan because he was getting in the way of his path to the cross? We see what gentleness really is when we look at our Lord. He was always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. How about you? Could you say that of yourself Are you always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time? So we're to walk in humility. We're to walk in gentleness, but also we are to walk with patience. I love this word. This is the Greek word makrothumia. Everyone say that? Makrothumia. Good, I told you. Be ready. This word literally means a long fuse. We're to have a long fuse. Now, let's be honest, who of us can truly say in five o'clock Market Street traffic that we have a long fuse? But what's important to note here is Paul's not talking about being patient under difficult circumstances. That is a word. No, he's talking about being patient toward difficult people. So maybe it's that person who cuts you off in that five o'clock traffic. Or my personal favorite, maybe it's the one who chooses to go 20 miles per hour in a 45 mile per hour zone. If you're a parent, maybe it's your kid right now. If you have a nerve, they know exactly when and how to touch it. Or maybe you're like me and you have wives with the habit of literally shedding their whole head of hair in the bathroom and you have to lovingly clean it up every day. Love you, Summer. Or wives, maybe you have husbands that say they'll be home at a certain time, like me, and we're not, and they have to reheat the dinner one, two, three, and four times. Sorry, Summer. (laughs) So before you get too caught up in pointing fingers, remember that sometimes you're the difficult one. You're the difficult person. So patience brings about this idea of self-restraint against retaliating when you're wronged. Coupled with humility and gentleness, the patient person has an emotional quietness of soul in the face of any annoyance, any misfortune, and any exasperating circumstance with a brother or sister in Christ. So we are to be patient. We are to have a long fuse. We're also to bear with each other in love. Paul moves on and talks about this idea of bearing with each other. I love this picture. It's the picture of someone literally holding themselves up firmly against another person so that neither them nor you cave under the weight of the problem. What does this mean for us, church? It means first and foremost that we listen. (laughs) We listen when we don't like what we hear. And we listen to understand, not just to say what we want to say. We are not in the business of shutting down our brothers and sisters if we don't agree with them. We hold them up. We demonstrate the selfless, active, godly type of love that has been poured out within us through the Holy Spirit. We reflect the love of Jesus that has long been patient and put up with us in love. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 17. 
And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? That's that same word. Jesus puts up with us. He does more than that. He loves us in the midst of it. Aren't you incredibly glad that the Lord bears with us, that he puts up with us, that he's patient with us? Because I think you and I could honestly say that we are some of the most aggravating children there could ever be. We are to do likewise with our family here. We are to do likewise in the church to bear with one another in love. So we see that a worthy walk begins with a right view of self. A worthy walk also involves showing grace to others. Thirdly, a worthy walk involves pursuing peace in the church. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So now that we've seen this conduct start to build, this humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, now begs the question, why? Why? Why, Paul, should we be humble? Why should we be gentle? Why should we be patient? What is our motivation? Because this is about so much more than changing your behavior, church. Pursuing peace guards unity in the church. And this language here that Paul uses, I love it. It's this idea of an athlete straining and stretching. When he says that we are to be eager, it means we are to be zealous. We're to labor. It's the picture of an Olympic athlete that's literally stretching and using every last muscle to get over the finish line. We are to be eager to maintain unity. We are to make sure that nothing gets in the way of the oneness that we have in Jesus. Now, I need to say something to make this clear. Paul does not say, please note, create the unity of the church. Paul does not say, create the unity of the spirit. He says, maintain it. In other words, guard it, hold it, keep it. Don't let any intruder outside or inside the church steal it away because you already have it. So let me ask you, are you preoccupied with guarding peace in the body? Are you ruled by peace and are you fastened by love? Look what Paul says elsewhere in the book of Colossians. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So what is Paul meaning when he says this idea of bond or binding? It's the amazing picture of two ships at sea that have been fastened together. It talks about our security and and our permanence with our peace in Christ. We enjoy a deep, unshakable well-being, an inner rest that is alien to the rest of the world. And as we pursue peaceful unity in the body, we are walking worthy 
and we are pleasing the heart of our Father. So, what happens when we don't make pursuing peace a priority? What happens when unity is not eagerly maintained in the body? Many of you know that before I came and worked at the church, I've done a lot of things. I'm a jack-of-all-trades of sorts. Um, coming out of uh, undergrad, I loved medicine. My dad's a pharmacist, and so I really thought for my whole young life that I was going to be the best surgeon there ever was. It's okay. I'm not there. I still love medical things. I also worked at Chick-fil-A, the best institution known to man. I worked there for three years, and it was awesome. But I've never lost my love and my appreciation for medical things and for specifically human anatomy and physiology. It jazzes me. Y'all, I'm weird. Like, I I love reading about the human body, about physiology. In fact, I have a very uh, specific memory. My senior year of college at UNCW, I took a class called Human Embryology. If you've studied up, embryology is the study of basically the baby growing in the womb. And if anyone doubts the existence of a creator God, I encourage you to look into embryology. Um, I was tearful most of the year thinking about the goodness of God, the amazing design of the human body. And I remember learning about the human heart. That at five weeks gestation, which is what this is, that the heart is basically formed is a a tube structure, and everything's in place for a fully functioning heart. And that if any microscopic valve was even two millimeters to the right or to the left, the whole thing would crumble. (laughs) I remember doing homework that day and just crying and praising the Lord and reciting Psalm 139. So in the midst of this season, I came across a book that a nurse friend of mine suggested It's a book by Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. If you're interested in medical things, I highly, highly suggest this book. Well, their whole purpose is to paint the analogy and make it clear between the human body and the body of Christ. And I want to read you a quote that they wrote in their chapter called Mutiny. Sometimes a dreaded thing occurs in the body, a mutiny resulting in a tumor lipoma. A lipoma is a low-grade, benign tumor. It derives from a single fat cell skilled in its lazy role of storing fat that rebels against the leadership of the body and refuses to give up its reserves. As that cell multiplies, daughter cells follow its lead and a tumor grows like a fungus. They multiply without any checks on growth, spreading rapidly throughout the the body, choking out normal cells. Physicians fear no malfunction more deeply. It is called cancer. For mysterious reasons, these cells, and they may be cells from the brain, liver, kidney, bone, blood, skin, or other tissues, they grow wild, out of control. Each is a healthy functioning cell, but disloyal, no longer acting in regard for the rest of the body. They continue, we need to pause and look carefully at ourselves. Christ's body needs all types of cells, fat and thin, rich and poor, simple and complex, but that body only needs loyal cells. God save us from being a cancer within his body. 
That should move us to action. That should move us to action, church. Do you want to be called a cancer in the body of Jesus Christ? An otherwise healthy cell but disloyal to the head? Let it never be. Is there any greater motivation, church, than this? To know that we are a love gift from the Father to the Son. We enter into this everlasting unity that characterizes heaven. We reflect the heart of God and imitate the relationship of the Trinity. Why is a worthy walk important? A worthy walk is our thank you to the Father. A worthy walk is a fragrant aroma to our Lord Jesus. A worthy walk is our expression of love to the God who has saved our souls. I want to give you some thoughts to ponder on this. I think the danger of listening to a message like this is saying, ah, that was good. There's some good things there. But yet we don't apply it to our hearts. We don't do anything with it. And so I want to help you in that. And I want to give you some questions to consider this week. What would the Lord say about your humility, gentleness, patience, and love for others? Is your conduct consistent with your calling? Secondly, is unity with other believers a priority in your life? Why or why not? What practical steps will you take this week to pursue peace and build unity? I'm going to pray for us, and then I want to invite the band back up to lead us in a song that will help us respond to this great reality. I want the words of this song to wash over you. And I want us to be lost in the wonder and the awe that our God has invited us into his family, that we have been invited into oneness with our God. How good he is to us. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so grateful to be up here this morning. Father, I felt very encouraged this week as I've been in this scripture, but also I've been incredibly challenged by it. Lord, I pray that each person in this room would not walk away saying, oh, that was a good message or there was something good to take from it, but I pray, Lord, that their hearts would literally be rocked. Father, that they would see the perfect example and the perfect picture of the Lord Jesus in all of these areas and that they would cry before him and say, Lord, help me, a sinner. Father, I pray that you would do heart surgery in us this week. Conform us to the image of your son, Lord. Let us properly reflect who you have made us to be. Let us walk worthy, Father, of all that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill or want to learn more about Jesus, go to scottshill.org slash next steps. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it to your social media stories. Be sure to tag us at Scotts Hill. 
Thanks so much for listening. Till next time.